0: Everyone. This is Mike Sedam with the Crucial Talks Podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and please take an opportunity to reach out to me if you get a chance. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, and I'm always open to email. Just visit www.crucialtalks.com, and you can find all kinds of ways to link up with me there. I'd also like to hear from you if you need me to speak at any of your organizations. This week... A lot has been going on with protests in California over an officer-involved shooting. And there's also been a lot going on in Washington, D.C. over gun control. Back when I was getting my first master's degree in public administration, I used to say all the time that I was an analyst, not an activist. Once I got into studying human behavior, that became even more important. These protests and marches, when looked at from the perspective of human behavior, Social identity and social construction can help us understand what drives people. Listen to a couple of these clips, one about the protests in California and the other about the anti-gun march in Washington, D.C. Again, let's be analysts, not activists. We will benefit more from analyzing the human behaviors and not picking a side. There's plenty of other podcasts for that. So when you listen to these clips, think about three things. One, the role people are playing. Two, how important the language is to the in-groups involved. And three, how you think labeling out-groups can help justify some of the behaviors. Now to Northern California where there is growing outrage over a fatal police shooting. Officers opening fire on an unarmed black man in his grandparents' backyard. And we are now getting our first look at that shooting Police apparently thinking it was holding a gun. Now say it was a cell phone. NBC's Gotti Shorts has our report from Sacramento.
1: And we want to warn you, the video you're about to see is disturbing.
2: Let's just broke the window, running south, running to the south. Officers in a chopper investigating reports of a man vandalizing cars saying they have a visual on the suspect. All I right can tell is he's got a hoodie on. A heat signature from the police helicopter camera, the first glimpse of 22-year-old Stephen Clark. Hey, a permit on. This guy's running. Two officers below close in. Stop! And here is the moment of contact on the ground. Show me your gun! In the dark, an officer yells gun. Show me Police firing 20 shots at Clark in his grandparents' backyard, finding no weapons, only a cell phone. Minutes later, one officer says mute, and the two cameras stop recording audio. Clark's family wants to know exactly what was said.
1: You're muting something. You don't want the public to hear what you're saying. And that means that if you don't want the truth to come out, then all of it is a lie.
2: Sacramento Police Chief Daniel Hahn. When you saw them turn off the audio there in that clip, what did you think? I'm just curious why they did that and so but I knew that was part of
1: the investigation
2: sacramento has been criticized over use of force against black men in the past police confirming in this shooting one of the officers who opened fire was also black things are
1: heated right now it gets people difficult. are angry and hurting and all those sort of things and I just don't want anybody else to get hurt in our community while we're going through this investigation
3: today hundreds of Marjorie stoneman Douglas students arrived in Washington fed up with school shootings in Parkland Florida and across the nation upwards of 500,000 people here planning a march for our lives tomorrow are you touched by the fact that kids are coming from all over the United States for this
0: I'm absolutely touched by it I think it shows that there is a lot a massive amount of support for this movement we call the B- they say they're
3: protesting legislative inaction.
0: It's not a red and blue problem. It's a red, white, and blue problem. It's an American issue. It's a public issue that we need to get that through everyone's like mind.
3: This movement, still raw for many of the kids, coalescing in a remarkable five weeks and three days. Virginia Senator Tim Kaine telling the teens too young to vote this just doesn't happen in Washington like this. You have started something that is incredibly powerful. Former Vice President Joe Biden today. They're going to change the gun culture because uh, they, uh, they have no agenda. With rallies in 800 locations in the nation and around the world, there's a sense what's happening now is not far removed from another powerful movement.
0: I absolutely think this is kind of like the protest of the Vietnam War because we're, we're having a war on our streets. Blood, American young blood is being spilled every day.
3: Hoping their message takes root from the streets of Washington all the way back home.
0: There are power imbalances in each of these cases. People are getting power. People are using power, and power balances are shifting. We see government losing power. We see community groups using power and gaining power. We see behaviors that are being undertaken because of the perceived shift in power. Social groups formed and gained power to take action. Other groups perceived this power change, and this allowed groups to take action. This also made people accept behavior because of this perceived power. These clips have prepared us for the discussion we're going to have today, and that is social power. Power in our lives that includes when we're at work, when we're at home, or when we're out just experiencing our day. In this episode, we're going to talk about three key pieces of information about social power that can help you in everyday life. First, how people see power. What is their perception of power? Second, how do people get power? We know it exists. We see it all the time. But how do people actually get it? And third, how do people decide what they're going to do with the power they have? There have been a lot of studies and talk about power and how it is used by people. The view of power you may have heard in the past basically boils down to people seek power for their own selfish interests and don't care whose back they step on to get power. This makes them capable of doing some very ugly things just to get power. This view of power gives us a, an ugly picture of human behavior. If we use that framework or that lens of power being merely a selfish quest people take just for themselves and driven only by their own selfish desires and focus only on themselves... We get little value from it, except we might be able to say, hey, some people are just power hungry and selfish, and I just need to live with it because people will never change. Now, the problem I have with that is it's too easy to describe people that way. People are complex social animals, and complex social processes take place that drive behavior. So what we're going to do today is simplify that complex social process. We're going to change the lens to one of positive understanding. We're going to put on our lens of social construction, social identity, and self-categorization. We're going to look at humans as social storytelling animals and how this affects our use of power and how we experience power. First, we need to understand how people perceive power, and we're going to do it by understanding the social concept of power. The perception of power is an important concept because we need to understand why people use power and why people put up with another person's use of power. If it was purely selfish and self-absorbed, people would probably put up with a lot less than they actually do. As social animals, we perceive power based on the relationships we have with others and the identities we have adopted. This includes the identities we adopt for ourselves and the ones we categorize others into. For example, you put up with power differences all the time at work. The power difference between you and your boss. The power difference between employees that are the same rank that you are, but they work in a different office. For instance, budgeting folks versus operational folks. And with people outside your workplace, there are also power differences, like customers and stakeholders. People put up with these differences because they have adopted behaviors that fit with their identities. And the acceptance of someone else having power over them is okay because it's part of that identity and part of the respect and feelings that go with that identity. And this leads us to our second takeaway, and that is, how do people get power? If it's not because they're just power-hungry, self-absorbed individualists that seek power— What is it? In my opinion, it's because we are social animals. People get power because other people give it to them. And they give it to them when they assign identities to them. And when people adopt identities that come with that power. People give someone power by categorizing that person into a role that has power. We saw it in the March for Lives where high school kids were given power by politicians and other groups. Power is given with the role we assign to people, and we get power with these roles because the person is playing the role driven by the same beliefs, values, and characteristics we assign to that role and that we believe is important to playing that role. Now, there is a reverse side to that coin, and the reverse side of that coin is when someone we assign a role to and power goes with that role— if that person starts acting outside of those beliefs and values, then we try to take that power away. And that's the example we see from the protests of the Austin involved shooting. People that saw the shooting as unjustified try to take the power away from the police. People that see it as justified reinforce the power they have assigned to the police, and in some cases increase the power they have assigned to that role. And we see the same thing happen to the protesters when they start protesting in ways that affect people that used to support them. For example, blocking a sports venue or blocking the freeway so people can't get home. The people that used to support those protesters then begin to reduce their support because they feel that the beliefs and values being used by those protesters to get their message out no longer agree with the role that they have been assigned. And they start trying to pull that power away. So now let's move to what people do with power once they get it. We just talked about how they get power. It comes with the roles assigned to them. So then how do those people that get into those roles decide what they're going to do with it? And this is our third takeaway. People can use power based on their in-group view or their out-group view. Let's start with out-groups. People use coercive power without groups not within groups. I know you have experienced a supervisor, a boss, or other individual that outranks you in your organization that treats others horribly. They use coercive power because they see themselves in a role that is different than the roles subordinates are in. They actually see the worker as a member of an outgroup, and this allows them to exhibit some pretty ugly behavior. If the people that assign them to this role allow this to occur, and don't take action to let them know it is outside of the value system of the organization, very toxic environments can be created. So this is a message to all the leaders out there. If there's somebody you have assigned to the role, and they take that and start treating their people badly, they're doing it because they're looking at them as an outgroup. And that is not the environment you want in your workplace. This is why you need to make it stop. Because healthy organizations are made up of in-groups, of teams, of people with trust, of people that support each other. So what kind of power then is used when we're talking about in-groups? People that share value systems and beliefs. We know it's not coercive power. It's a power that is used to further the in-group's interest, to further how the team is doing, to benefit everybody. Social power has to be used within the norms of the in group For example, if a peace officer points a gun at someone that's a threat, this is an entirely acceptable use of power. If they point a gun at someone that is just walking by doing nothing, that's a huge violation of the in-group values. If they point a gun at another officer, that's an even greater violation of in-group values, and they won't be considered part of that in-group for very long. Those are extreme examples, but the same thing happens in any workplace. People that violate in-group values won't be in that group for very long. So the use of power is actually based on the context of the roles people are playing at the time power is being used. And power is not this dark force, but it can be used as a positive force when looked at from the lens of social belonging and the roles we play. Power used can be better understood if you think about it from the identity perspective. What roles are people playing? And how is the power being used in those roles? Is it furthering the goals of the group that they're identifying with at the time? If it is, now you're starting to see that it's a positive use of power. Let's listen to this clip to help us understand the three key takeaways of this episode. Just as a quick reminder, the three key takeaways are one, how people see power. What is their perception of power? Two, how do people get power? And three, how do people decide when they are going to use power, and how are they going to use it? In this clip, this is from *Smoking the Bandit*. Sheriff Buford T. Justice has been chasing the bandit's black Trans Am for hundreds of miles. As a result, his police car is missing a door, a roof, and has numerous dents and dings.
1: I do officer. My name's. I don't care if your name's Broderick Crawford. Don't you know you can't drive a piece of like that on the highway? I'll thank you not to use that kind of language in my prison. Never mind that crap. Now, what the hell is this? This is evidence. Evidence? Well, I don't care what it is, you can't drive this piece of shit on my highway. I'm telling you for the last time. I happen to have my young son in the car, and I don't want to hear that kind of language. Look, I'm asking you sound, oh! goddamn Hold, death. death! Don't you ever, ever raise your voice to me! Do you know who you're talking to? I happen to be Buford Chief Justice, a distinguished officer of over 30 years seniority, one of the most highly respected law enforcement agents in the United States of America. That vehicle happens to be evident. Valuable evidence that's going to convict the maniac that I've been trying to apprehend and that I have been in high-speed pursuit of for 700 miles. He is wanted for a man-act, kidnapping, and the attempted murder of over 20 brother officers. Sir, I'm sorry. Well, I I had no idea. It it never occurred to me. Well, Please, sir, you proceed immediately. Sir, I, I hope you'll accept my apologies for my profanity.
0: Apology accepted? No. In that clip, we heard Sheriff Buford T. Justice deal with a state trooper. In the beginning, we see the trooper thinks he has a lot of power based on the role he's playing and based on the context of that situation. He even says, you can't drive this on my highway. Clearly, he sees his perception of power, and there's a power indifference, and he's treating Buford T. Justice as an outgroup. He gets this power because of the role he has adopted, the identity given to him by his state, and shown by his uniform, his car, and other identifying aspects of that role. And he decided to use coercive power based on seeing the sheriff as an outgroup member. And Sheriff Justice put up with this for a little while, up until he saw the cost of that type of power too high for him to deal with. He was not willing to pay that price. So then what happened? The power balance shifted, and we can see how Sheriff Justice got the power. He adopted the role of the 30 year police veteran that was one of the most respected law enforcement officials in the country. We see that this allowed Sheriff Justice to use coercive power against the trooper. But if we see it from the trooper's standpoint, we see that he became an in group member and his behavior changed quite a bit. He actually gave value to how Sheriff Justice was acting, he recognized Sheriff Justice's role. And it still fit within his beliefs and value systems. That's why he was able to accept it. So the next time you're watching the news or trying to understand decisions at work, you can more easily understand how and why people are behaving the way they are by thinking about a couple of things. One, ask yourself, what is that person's perception of power? Is it within the norms of the group they have adopted it and are assigned to? Two, how did they get the power? Who assigned it to them and for what purpose? And three, how are they behaving? Are they behaving like the people they're dealing with are groups? Are they using coercive power? Or are they behaving like the people they're dealing with are in groups and they're trying to help the whole group move forward? Are they behaving in a way that is coercive? If you're a leader and you see people doing this, you have to take action. That will cause a toxic environment. People using power within organizations should be using it to further the in-group. Or is it a combination of both? These kind of things you look for can help you when you're trying to figure out the culture of an office or a shift or a group of people. It helps you to be able to see where that power is coming from, how it's being used, and how did they get the power. Because if you understand how they got the power you'll understand where conflicts will develop when they misuse that power so that people want to grab the power back. It will help you a lot asking these questions. These questions can help you practice understanding and analyzing how people are using power. As a result, you can start to analyze how you are using power. Do you see your subordinates or other team members as outgroup members? And if so, are you using that coercive power? Because if you're trying to be coercive, you are seeing people as outgroups. You can change your lens, though. Another question you can ask yourself, are you using the wrong identity when acting within that role while you interact with others? Because if you are a coercive power, maybe all you have. A quick change in the lens you use can change the entire context of the situation and change it for the better. So in this episode, we talked a lot about power, but we talked about power in a way that helps us understand the social interactions that occur in our day-to-day lives. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Power has so many negative connotations with it, but in reality, it is an integral part of how people treat each other as social storytelling animals. Please visit www.crucialtalks.com and reach out to me if you can. I'd love to connect with you. If you have any questions, if you'd like me to present to your organization, if you have any advice for me, if you have any ideas for what you'd like to see in a future episode, please let me know. Have a great week, and remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people.